and welcome to the Saint and Sinner podcast. We're a reformed podcast helping God's weary and bruised people find their rest in the finished work of Christ. And my name's Daniel, and I'm here with my co-host Brian. And today we're going to do a whistle-stop tour of the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at key Bible figures, and we're going to be talking about the kinds of people that the Lord Jesus saves and uses and uh, works in and through. And, and I think it's going to flip our expectations, the kinds of people that the Lord Jesus comes to and meets and loves and dies for. But before we get into that, th- this is going to be somewhat of an opening gambit. So I came across a tweet. Twitter is so unhelpful just in general. I think I'm going to probably be saying that every episode. <laughs> but uh, I came across a tweet of Paul Washer's, and everyone's jumped on it. And we're just as an opening gambit, we'll just we'll just look at this tweet and we'll we'll chat about it for just a moment and then we'll, then we'll get into what we want to talk about. So Paul Washer said this. He said, "Performing the Great Commission requires conducting your life according to the instructions in Scripture. Only by acting in obedience to the clear directives of Scripture may you stand as an approved workman on the day of judgment." What, Brian, do, you want, do you want to just begin by, I'll throw the ball over to you. What, why is that slightly unhelpful? I think it just kind of misunderstands what the Great Commission actually is. I think if you kind of read Jesus' words as this going out and making disciples and proclaiming this good news to the world, I think if you then collapse it into this idea of, well, first I need to make myself a, a, an upright and um, kind of morally good person like Christian, and then I can fulfill the Great Commission in, in my own obedience and my own kind of sanctification work. Whereas I think what we're we're seeing in the Great Commission is this call to reach the nations, to make disciples, and including in that is to teach them, you know, the words of Jesus and his commands, doing all that he commanded. But it's, yes, it's not the opposite, it's is it? Not it's not the, lawlessness. Yeah, it's not lawlessness, <laughs> but it's it's in line with doing good, doing good works, but it's in light of grace, right? And so mm. if the Great Commission is to kind of proclaim this good news, you can't just make it about your own personal obedience, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that then puts the onus on you, doesn't it? Where the Great Commission is only achievable when I'm living a particular kind of life, as opposed to, now I'm, I'm pointing people to what Jesus has already accomplished. That sort of just shapes the way that you think about the Great Commission. And, you know, what Paul says at the end, that what Washer says at the end there, only only by acting in obedience to the directives of Scripture can you stand as an approved workman on the Day of Judgment. I think it's just unhelpful language. Yeah. I, yeah, because I think people will miss... I think we need to be really clear when we're speaking in this kind of a way. I think people will misread that and say, oh, okay, I need to act in absolute obedience, otherwise I'm not going to be approved on the Day of Judgment. Yeah. And, and that's that's an unhelpful way to word things. It's almost yeah. You take your approval and then you start to put it back into a justification by works. Yeah, so you almost fall so. into that Piper camp again, where you go, oh no, no, you're initially justified by faith if you believe the gospel. But then there's this future point where you can be approved before God. This future second justification by works, and that depends on you. Yeah, how good yeah. you are and how yeah. well you perform the Christian life. Um, but the problem there is those who Jesus declares righteous are righteous from beginning to end. Yeah, amen. And yeah, totally. Oh, to, to throw Paul Washer a bone, uh, I think he'd, he if he was sitting here with us in this room, he'd be in, in complete agreement. <laughs> he'd say, That's not what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wait a second, guys. And, and, and to, to throw him another bone, he, he has said that you may stand as an approved workman on the day of judgment. So I, I think he's just talking about the, the rewards thing. And I, I know there are various positions on that. 
But that's not a heretical position to take. Absolutely. And, and, you know, there's plenty of points in the Bible that talk about those who who stand approved in the last day are those who did the works of God, the, the righteous things of the Lord. Now, we understand that to be works that flow out of faith in the gospel in a, in a confirmed and sure justification by faith alone and a righteousness provided outside of ourselves. We then work. But we think that Paul Washer would agree with that. He, he'd be on board with it's everything totally, we're saying. And, totally. and so this is the unhelpful part of Twitter. <laughs> when you try to jam pack an entire theology into one line, it's, yeah. you can often misconstrue a message. I reckon every week someone could take one sentence out of my sermons and say, look, he's a law guy. He wants to smash people over I'm going to do that from now on. I'm just going <laughs> to start tweeting one-liners out of Daniel's sermons. Don't do it. It'll be so disappointing. Uh, all right, so complete gear change now. Uh, we, we've gone from I don't know was was that gear five or gear one? I think we're hopefully gear one because I'm that not ready gear for gear five. All right, well we we, we were just in gear one. We're, we're now going into gear two, and we're going to talk about the kinds of people. If you open up your Bible and you're sitting there thinking, okay, who are the kinds of people that God uses and saves in the Christian life? Well, I hope that you're going to be surprised and and a little bit delighted as as we pick on some of these characters. And I think this will be a really good antidote to the whole Bible hero way of you know reading the Bible, where it's Noah the obedient, David the brave, you know, Daniel the, I don't know, the bold. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah, we we've all heard those kinds of. And it's what it's what comes out of all children's ministries, you know. Oh yeah. And yeah. I was reading a book last night. My my son, my oldest, he's four. He wanted to read the this book on Noah's story. And it just starts there. Noah was a righteous man, and and then it just finishes. And oh yeah, he, he did everything God said, and the world was recreated. And and then it misses that point where well, no failure came soon after. Oh, right? totally, so, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the Old Testament sets you up like that. It's always looking for the seed that's going to bring blessing. And if you, oh, it's this guy. Yep. Okay, when Noah comes on the scene, you're like, God has just hit reset with Adam. You know, this Amen. is the new creation in in Noah. This is going to be the man to bring in the new creation. Yes. And he, and he ends up naked in a tent, and um, you're like, yeah. "Oh, this probably isn't our guy." And, and also, so he's got a drinking problem. <laughs> I know, and he he loves getting naked, which uh, good on him. And uh, and what people often miss is in in the beginning of the passage, uh, before it has that threefold aspect of Noah's obedience that he walked with God, etc. It says Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, hmm. and so even before we hear anything of, of Noah's obedience, God gives him favor; he grants favor. Yes. Um, so let's let's begin. What what we're going to do? We're going to begin with Abraham, and and I, I love Abraham because you might be sitting there thinking, "Oh yes, you know, this is the guy. This is the obedient, faithful man of God in the Old Testament." Now, to back up quickly, God has a plan, and God's plan is to bless all the nations in the world through the seed of a particular family, and God's plan is to create a whole people, a holy people, who are holy in His sight. And they're going to be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. What's the kind of guy you're going to pick to do that? Well, you're going to pick a man that is that worships Yahweh alone. You're going to pick a man who's young, full of vitality and strength, and has a wife who can pop out babies like rabbits. They're completely fertile. She's popping them out left, right, and center. That is the kind of guy that God's going to pick, isn't it? Yeah, and yet you pick some guy out of the middle of Canaan. Right. This is that where we where is he from? Is that is that there? Wait, there, where it, it was Ur the the Chaldeans, and then they yeah, moved Chaldean, to Haran. Yeah, but he's yeah. he's in the in the midst of kind of pay, the pagan world, right? And he's surrounded by religions that would not have worshipped Yahweh. His only options growing up would have been to worship those who contradict 
the yeah. true faith, right? And Joshua 24 calls him a pagan. Yeah, he says pagan. that he worshipped foreign gods. And and not only that, he's 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 over the hill. And he's got one foot in the grave already. Uh, his wife is also old, Sarah. We're, we're just going to call them Abraham and Sarah rather than Abraham and Sarah, so you don't get confused. Sarah, she's barren. She can't have children. These are the people? Oh, my God, what are you thinking? <laughs> if you're going to start a whole new family and bless all the nations of the world, I think God's got the wrong guy. What's he doing with someone like Abraham? Right, and so, and so in, in Genesis 12, God speaks to Abraham and says, you go from your country, from your kindred, and to your father's house, to the land that I'll show you. And God makes this stunning promise of, of blessing, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through, through Abraham's family. And at this point, Abraham's obedient and faithful. And he hears God say that. And it takes guts to, to go out into this land, into this backwater place called Canaan. Well, at the moment, he doesn't even know where it is. God says, I'll show you. And um, he, he worships, and it starts really, really well. We're not denying that. Um, but then it goes really, really bad from verse 10 onwards. You know, we're only halfway through the, the chapter. What do you think of that, Brian? So, yeah, Abram who was supposed to be this morally upright figure, God chose him because he's righteous, right? That he's a worshiper of Yahweh, does everything that he's supposed to do. And yet we get to this account of Abraham or Abram meeting the Pharaoh who has an interest in his wife. And yet what does Abram do? He starts to lie about it. He says, no, that's not my wife. That's my sister, right? Because I'm now fearful for my own good, for my own well-being. And so I'm, I'm afraid what Pharaoh might do to me if she, he knows that this is my, my wife. So guess what? I'm going to lie about it. I'm going to try to righteous do everything men, for myself. Righteous right? men pimp off their wives. Exactly. This, this kind of self-centered, just I'm, a, I'm above everything else. I'm what's most important. And yeah, so we, there's, another, there's a failure, a failure in, in yeah. the hero of the story. Immediately, like right at the beginning. I, I don't think that's any mistake, you know, why Moses places this here to show us, look, you're waiting for this, this new Adam who's going to crush the serpent. And um, you think it's going to be Abraham. And, and it's not. He kind of sucks. And... And so now you're probably thinking, well, God discards him, man. You know, so so he, he begins bad. He's got a wife that's barren. He's an old man. He's a, he's a pagan worshiper. And now he goes and pimps off his wife to save his own neck. God's going to hit the reset button again and begin with someone else. And, he, and yet, what amazingly, what we find is God doesn't do that. God continues to show him grace. And, and all the way through Abraham's story, I mean, just flick ahead to chapter 15 of Genesis. And you've got this amazing covenant that, that God makes with Abraham, where it's a unilateral covenant. Uh, that is, God makes it unconditionally, and he puts himself through these cut-up animals. That, that was a, a traditional thing that you would do in the ancient world when you make a covenant. You'd, you would cut up animals, and you would walk through with the other party to say, look, let it be to me if I, am not, if I do not fulfill the, the terms of the covenant. In other words, I, I will take on the curse of these animals. You can cut me up if I don't meet the, the covenant demands. Yeah. And the God's taking this upon himself, which is just staggering and beautiful. And it's um, amazing that, that that kind of idea is a promise to the individual who's, who observes it. And he's saying, look, if I don't fulfill my promises to you, if I don't fulfill this covenant, I, I, I'll take death upon myself. And the ironic thing is, it is the way that God fulfills that promise fulfills that covenant is by taking death upon himself yeah, yeah. and so it's, it's a beautiful imagery there and a pointing forward to the gospel yeah like what more could god have done to show abraham that he was going to be faithful to his promise absolutely other than yes actually coming on a cross mm. and being cut in half the sinners like, it's just yeah 
God's plan of redemption is amazing. And, and so, so, yeah, chapter 15, you've got Abraham, this man of faith. So verse 6, you probably know this verse well. Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But actually sandwiched, um, well, just before that, Abraham's shaky. He's what I love to call a wobbly worshiper. <laughs> he is so shaky. He's like, Lord, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this. Like the, the only child that I have in, in my house is, is not actually my child, is Eli, this Eliezer guy. I, I don't have any offspring. How are you going to pull through on this? And so you don't see Abraham, this amazingly faithful man that's got faith that can move mountains. You see this wobbly worshiper quite like the rest of us. Mm. And um, what does God do? He doesn't come and crush him and say, look, you failed in your faith. I'm going to come and kill you now. And God's like, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. He just keeps reassuring him of his totally. promises. And I think if we were the kind of self-righteous, judgmental Christians in the back pew, by this point, we're saying, no, get rid of that guy. Yeah. You know, he's not righteous. He keeps lying about his, his wife for his own good and his own um, kind of well-being. And, and he's also failing to keep this strong faith that you're supposed to have in God alone. And so all of these things pile together and we say, no, that guy should be disqualified. Get rid of him. And yet God says, no, here's another promise and another one and another one. Yeah. You're mine. I've chosen you and I'm going to fulfill these things in you. Because of you and your righteousness, we've seen that being evidently clear through the passage, but because I'm a good God and I'm going to give these things to you. But what, what about chapter 16? So 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 one chapter later, so God, God makes like the most amazing promises of all time and commits to it by himself in covenant. And then a few verses later, Abraham and, and Sarah come up with this amazing plan where, where they're thinking in the in the back of their heads, we need to help God out a little bit. God's, God's unable to do this without us, you know, figuring this out. And so I wonder if you can see the imagery in that account pointing us back to the garden. Totally. Right where Eve tells Adam, "Here, I've got this fruit. It's good to eat. Eat some." And and Adam listens to his wife, even though he's supposed to be the leader. He's supposed to be the one who's who's guiding the family and the rule of the world. And and he submits to his wife's demands and and, and requests. And here again, we see his wife, Abram's wife, coming up to him and saying, "Look, I've got no children. You should go into my servant Hagar." And again, you have the man. Uh, sacrificing his own leadership in the family and submitting to a sinful request that that disobedience to the promises of God. Now, this is actually quite serious. So in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul calls this justification by works. So what Abraham's actually doing is trying to justify himself by his works. How, how's he doing that? Well, he's trying to take God's promises into his own hands. So Christian, whenever you, whenever you try and do that, whenever you think, look, God has made these amazing promises in Christ. They're great, but I'm going to try and help God out a little bit. And so I'm going to do my, my daily Bible reading, and I'm going to make sure that I'm really good with my church attendance. I'm really good with discipling my children. And I'm going to tick this box and that box and that box. And I'm going to help God out so that on the final day, I'm going to be justified. The Apostle Paul would warn you that, that you're, you're trying to justify yourself by works. Mm. And that's a terrible idea because in Christ, we're fully justified. As we've said before, you know, that our justification doesn't change based on our behavior. So when I when I stuff up in a big dramatic way, that doesn't make my righteousness or justification less. Because it's Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. When I do a really good thing, uh, that doesn't make my justification better. Because it's Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen.
So, so, so that's that's chapter sixteen. It's a, it's a bit of a, a muck up. And then again, chapter seventeen, God appears to Abraham again and, and reassures him and gives him these these great promises. And you got the, the covenant of circumcision there. And you read ahead, and and Abraham he does it again in chapter twenty. He he pimps <laughs> off his wife a second time. And uh, what's so funny about that chapter is Abimelech, the pagan, has has more moral tenacity than than even Abraham himself, because he's like, what? This thing ought not to have been done, what you've done to us. And uh, so, so rather than being a blessing to the nations, Abraham seems to be a bit of a curse, because God closed up their wombs because of him. Mm. And then you've got the birth, and, and I love this, the birth of Isaac. So finally, after all of this time, um, a son is born to Abraham, and he's called Laughter. Um, because it's funny. We're meant to be laughing as, as he comes along. Abraham is, is 100. Sarah's basically 102. They should be um, in the in the nursing home, not the neonatal class. You know, here's Abraham and Sarah bouncing this baby on their knees. And it's just hilarious. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, this is God lifting all expectations and coming through on his word. Yeah, and so then we come to the sacrifice of Isaac. You know, God calls Abraham to sacrifice this child who is the child of the promise, right? God told him, I'm going to create a great nation out of you. It's going to bless the world. I'm going to give you a great land. And it's going to come through this child, right? Isaac. And now he's being told, take him to the mountain and, and sacrifice him. So there's a lot of things going through Abraham's head, but for some reason he's saying, no, no, I got to I got to trust the Lord and I'm going to walk this direction. And this is great. You're thinking, wow, Abraham's succeeding here. And so uh, what's always fine, it's quite interesting. He he gives Isaac the wood to carry up to the mountain. So so Isaac's basically carrying the instruments of his own death and he's going to the mountain. So that, that also points us forward to Jesus Christ, who also carried the instrument of his own death. And so there's these, mm. these concept pointing forward to, to the gospel. But so they go to the mountaintop and and Abraham stands over his son with a knife, ready to slay his son and sacrifice to the Lord. And God stops him right before. Uh, we don't know actually how how close he got to to taking his life, but he does stop him before he commits it. And well, we've got to throw him a bone. Hey, like this is amazing obedience. Oh, Let's just call it incredible. what it is. Yeah, God says do this, and in in faith he trusted the Lord and did it. I couldn't do it, Brian. No way. I don't think I could do that. You know, I've, got, I've got three kids. I couldn't take them up a mountain and bring down the knife. Uh, and, and yes, and, and so in, in Hebrews 11, or, or Romans, we're told that, that Abraham believed that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Mm. And so that's his faith in this moment, because God, God made a promise that it's through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And therefore, Abraham knows one, or two, one of two things. Either the knife is not going to fall on Isaac. Or if it does, God's going to raise him from the dead because God makes a promise and God will see it through. Mm. Uh, it just takes tenacious faith. He, he's, he's not a wobbly worshiper here at all. He, he really is walking by amazing and incredible faith. And, and so you think, well, we come to the end of Abraham's life and this is great. He just ends on a flyer. What a guy. Well, actually, when you turn to Genesis 25, where you've got Abraham's death and, and a list of his descendants there, we learn about his other wives, which is a little bit ambiguous, to be honest with you. And and so you're like, oh, well, that's a, that's a bit of a bummer. That's a bit of a downer way to end Abraham's story. And so is, is Abraham the kind of guy that you would naturally, is he the pick of the litter when it comes to God's promises? And I think the answer is no. 
Yes, he's amazing in so many ways. He is a man of faith. Let, let's not deny that. But but he's pretty wobbly. He's pretty fa- failing in lots of ways. He tries to justify himself by his works. He he doesn't trust God a lot of the time. And then he takes more than one wife. And you're sort of thinking, well, is this really the the kind of guy that God would deal with? Really? <laughs> of all these of all of all the people in the world? And we want to say. With great joy, yes, this is the exact kind of person that God loves to bless. So that shows that all of the work was actually him and, and not us. Abraham, his life is so relatable to us and our journey as Christians, where we have moments of great faith, where we have something happen in our lives and we put our trust in the Lord and we walk closely with him through that trial or, or whatever it is we're facing. And we come out the other side really encouraged by the way God moved in our lives. And then other moments where we're fickle and we fall apart and our faith is weak and we don't trust in his promises or we look for satisfaction or just justification in other things, our own works or or the materials of this world. And so we have a life that looks like Abraham's as Christians. It ebbs and flows. We wax and wane. We have highs and lows. We have burning f- flames of of our love and affections of God. And then we have the ones where our hearts turn cold. And so it's it's deeply encouraging to see that God chooses a man, not based on his performance, but on his own goodness and mm. on his own grace. Yeah, so good. So good. So good. Uh, now, now we're going to look at Jacob. He's the most despicable character in the whole Bible, I'm convinced of it. Well, at least the most despicable believer and uh, one of God's people. And and you, you you might be a little bit shocked by that, but I'm, I'm going to turn this around on us soon. So don't worry. I'm not pointing the finger at this guy. But just at face value, from the beginning to the end of his life, he really is a man who's out for himself. He's a, he's a me, myself, and I kind of a guy. And from the beginning, we see that in in the end of chapter twenty five, where he's, he's it's Clash of the Titans in the womb of Rebecca. Rebecca, Rebecca, yeah, Rebecca. yeah. So it's Clash of the Titans in Rebecca's womb. You know, it's an MMA cage fight in there, and the the two sons are going at it in the womb, and and Jacob eventually comes out and he's grabbing the heel, and and his name is Jacob, and that that could mean a few different things. It, it can mean heel grabber. I kind of like that. I think that just sums up his life so well. It can mean deceiver. Uh, and we see all of that in Jacob's life. But, you know, the, the big moment comes in chapter 27, where you've got all of this disgraceful mess of family dysfunction, where everyone is sinning against everyone. Uh, no one comes out of it squeaky clean. You've got Isaac preferring Esau, his hairy son, because of the good food that, you know, because he's a man who lives by his stomach and, and you know, kind of get that. And and then you got Rachel, uh, Rebecca, and she prefers Jacob, and and she comes up with this conniving plan, and and Jacob sees it through and deceives his father and blasphemes, even uses God's name. It was God that, that had done this, so he blasphemes God's name. Esau despises his birthright in, in in an earlier chapter, and you're just like, oh man, like this is just a complete and utter mess. And you think, well, that's okay, because when Jacob runs away, he, he goes to this foreign land, and he's going to learn all of these lessons, and he's going to come out a better guy. And actually, he's kind of the same. He, he goes into this foreign lands, and he deceives Uncle Laban um, with, with all of the sheep and stuff. It's, it's a funny read. You can, you can read it sometime. And, and he gets deceived himself, and he meets God, and he wrestles with God, and he comes back, and you're thinking, well, now that he's met God, and now that he's got this new name, 
now he's going to be a new man. It, that's, that's in chapter 32. And actually, so he's, he's he's renamed Israel, but he is called Jacob twice as many times as Israel from that point on. What does that tell us? Well, the whole saint and sinner thing. Jacob is simultaneously Israel. He's this new man that God has wrestled with and he's prevailed. That doesn't mean that, that Jacob's strong enough to beat God. It means that God allowed himself to be defeated, which points to the cross, doesn't it? But but he's also still Jacob. He's still deceiver, heel grabber, still the kind of guy that's out for himself. And we see this all the way. And you're like, God, really? Why did you choose someone like Jacob? Yeah, so what we see in Jacob is a messy road of life where he definitely comes across people who mistreat him. They're sinful towards him. And he responds in sinful ways himself. But he is not a man who takes the moral high ground. Oftentimes, he is seen lying and deceiving his way through life to benefit himself. And you don't walk away from his story thinking, man, this guy is an example I should follow. I should do everything he does. I should go out into my life and deceive people at work so that I can get promotions. I should go home <laughs> and deceive my wife so that she Good application, bro. So I get things Thanks. at home. Really you know, I, I should do all of this, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, how much good can I bring into my own life by my lies and deceit and my cunning plans? Like that's that's not what we should do, right? But but when we see uh, and, and here's the problem is when we read through the Old Testament, especially, you know, narratives like Genesis, the Bible doesn't give us a moral judgment on the things that they do. And so sometimes you have theologians out there who say, well, they didn't give a moral judgment, so therefore it, it's not bad. This is actually a good thing that he's done to fulfill God's plans and purposes. That's not true. Just because God doesn't say specifically and explicitly that this is wrong, you as the reader should be able to read it in light of God's word, understanding yeah. that the people who read this for the first time would have understood his law he and his commands, an his righteousness. Absolutely. I always, I always hear it. I always hear it. Like, oh, look, we can sort of like lie and deceive because Rahab did that and, and she's called faithful in, in Hebrews 11. And I'm like, no, I think misreading the text. I think one of the things about when it comes to a lie that happens for good, for instance, the Hebrew midwives, right? Where, where they're actually built up in the word of God saying, you know, God, you know, they're basically praised for what they've done. Now, how can that be? You, you got to look at the way that God preserves life, right? So he can use, I think I heard a quote the other day, and I think it was, it, it was more about suffering, but it said, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Yeah, that's good. And so I think that's how we can look at the lies of Rahab, the lies of the Hebrew midwives, is God permitting something that he hates to accomplish what he loves. And because they did that, it was a faithful response of the Hebrew midwives to do that thing, to uphold God's people that way. And yet... Oh, the Joseph story, isn't it? Right. The, the Joseph sold into slavery, uh, and it's uh, completely unjust and unfair, and yet becomes the means through which... Yeah. The Messiah, the, the, the promise of the Messiah goes on because God's people stay alive through the food. Absolutely. And so that's why you can look at the lives of the Hebrew midwives and see that it's talked about in a positive way, but yet it was to, to, the, to the means, the ends, you know, the means leading to the end of preserving life, of sustaining God's covenant people. Yeah. And one of the things that we, that we often hear when it comes to Jacob and Esau is this whole idea of election and you know, predestination and what's 
amazing about the passage is that before either of them had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. Jacob, he, he grows up to be a self-serving, conniving, deceitful rascal. And so he, he's never a model of goodness and godliness ever, I don't think, in the text. I think it's fair to say that Esau's the more likable and forgiving character. I'd rather have Esau as my next door neighbor yes. than I would Jacob, that's for sure. And yet it's Jacob that God chooses. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that God calls people to himself regardless of their moral resume. It doesn't depend on our character. That God saves people, uh, the people that least deserve it. So he picks the Isaacs, the laughable ones. He chooses the Jacobs, the cheats. And that's people like us. And so you might be thinking, but, I, but I've ruined my marriage. I've betrayed the people that are closest to me. I'm on the sex offenders register. I'm filthy with shame on the inside. I'm not worthy. I've done things that I'm so ashamed of that I can't even tell anyone. And to all of that, God says, I forgive you. I love you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I've taken your sins. I've thrown them from behind my back. It's gone from me and gone from you. And so take comfort in my provision of a sacrifice for you. Friends, that's how God answers our sins for those who trust in Christ. And so then moving on from Jacob, I think we're going to fast forward a little bit. Uh, he's got his, you know, the, the, his sons that come up and there's a lot of turmoil going on in the family, a lot of conflict there. And one could say that this all flows from Isaac, right? And his preferential treatment of his sons and and even Rebecca's preferential treatment of, of, of Jacob. And then that kind of shapes the parenting methods of, of Jacob himself. And then Jacob starts to prefer his own sons. He starts to prefer Joseph. And and then there's this kind of dynamic that's it's almost building up to form this um, the unfolding of the rest of the Genesis account. And yeah. and so what we see is is that that conflict comes to full fruition when the brothers decide, look, we've had enough of this Joseph guy. You know, he's the favorite of our father. He's always telling us about these dreams of how he's better than us, and he's going to have this future where he's ruling over us. You know what we're going to do? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. But he's, they're stopped by one of the brothers, Reuben, the oldest, and, and he said, "No, no, no, don't, don't kill him. Let's just put him in the pit for now. Let's, let's leave him there." And I'm going to. In his mind, he's thinking, "I'm going to come and rescue him later." And yet, while Reuben's away, the other brothers go, "Hey, look!" Actually, one specific brother says, "Hey, look! Here's some some slave traders coming by." It was Judah. Judah sees these slave traders, and he goes, "Hey, look! Let's sell. Let, you know what? What good is it if we kill him? We're not going to get anything from that." Let's sell him into slavery because he's our brother, you know, our flesh and blood. We don't want to hurt him. Sell him into slavery. That's better. Yeah. Am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. And I, actually, in the ancient world, to sell someone off to slavery like that is a form of murder. Mm. You get the death penalty for that in the ancient yeah. world. So it's super serious. And, and yeah, so we pick up this trace of Judah and Joseph. What's what I love? I love how God works. I love how the whole story is Joseph, pretty much. From beginning to end. And he's pretty flawless. He's spotless. There's there's one one passage in, in chapter 37 where we're told that uh, you, you sometimes hear people say there's no recording of Joseph's sin anywhere in Genesis. And so that makes him more like Jesus, who, who obviously never sinned. But there is a sin that's recorded. It's in verse 2 of chapter 37, where it says that Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Mm. Every other time that's used in the Hebrew Bible, it means an, a negative, lying, scheming report. Mm. And so Joseph's kind of that, yeah, you know, that annoying little brat that 
comes and just dobs you in and, and tells nasty lies to make you look bad. He's, he's that kind of a guy. So he's not really that much of a good guy. But but he he is pretty spotless throughout the, the rest of Genesis. So I've got to be honest about that. And and so you're you'd naturally think, well, this is the favored son. He ends up being vice regent over all of Egypt. He's spotless in his in his holiness. He's a guy who trusts God and who at the end of his life says what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And so we're naturally thinking, this is the guy who's going to carry on the promise of the Messiah. It has to be. Who else could it possibly be? In terms of the way we look at things, he's the perfect candidate. But how does God see things? Well, we get this weird kind of story that's sandwiched in between this account of Joseph, and it's Genesis 38, the passage that speaks about Judah and Tamar. It's a complete gear change, isn't it? It's it's like, why, why is it in there? It would leave some academic scholars, you know, non-Christian scholars out there to say, well, this was just edited in. It wasn't really part of the original uh, text. It was just something that they decided to put in there because it doesn't fit neatly into the story. And and what I would say is, no, it, it's supposed to be there. It's important. It's actually a massive part of the Joseph account. Moses knows what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. He, it's it's a brilliant piece. And so in this account, we see Judah um, descending further and further into evil. So he starts it off by what? Selling, kind of telling his brother, let's sell our brother Joseph into slavery. And then you saw, you have him here who... He goes down from his brothers. This is a picture mm. of his further descent, falling yeah. deeper and deeper into wickedness. And he goes to uh, a place and and marries a Canaanite woman. So again, he he's not just moved away from his brothers, but he's moved to a pagan land where everyone worships false gods. And he's decided to make his home there and to marry their women and to have children through them. Yeah. And his sons become evil and get killed. He, he calls he calls one of his sons Ur, which um, from from memory is evil backwards in Hebrew. The interesting thing here is <laughs> the, the the kind of idea of the apple not falling far from the tree. It shows up through the pages here. You get an idea of like when when a child grows up in a, a home with a wicked father, there's a good chance that they're going to end up picking up some of those bad traits and habits. And this is what the the author of the Bible wants you to see. These kids are evil, not because it's just random and they decided to be. Their dad, Judah, was horrendous. And so we have this idea of this man is so bad and he's getting worse and worse. And then he starts to give his children in marriage to this woman, Tamar. Uh, again, another probably Canaanite woman. So he's he's trying to lead his children to follow his own footsteps. And God kind of consistently puts them to death until there's only one remaining. But that one was too young to be married. So Judah says, well, listen, Tamar, why don't you go back home to your family? And when my son's old enough, I'll come and get you and then you can marry him. But he's kind of worried that is this, this yeah. last son is going to die too. So he doesn't have really any intention to to call her back when when his sons are old enough to get married. He just wants to get rid of her, really. And so he's not doing his duty as a parent. He's not doing his duty as a father-in-law. He has kind of rejected all of his responsibilities and kind of godly requirements and has decided to do what serves himself best. But he gets better because he sleeps with a prostitute. What he thinks is a prostitute <laughs> ends up being his daughter-in-law. 
And, and, and why that's so crazy is because he thinks she's a cult prostitute. And so that means he's doing it to satisfy the pagan gods, actually, so that his flocks would be fertile. And so he just, we're not even in the valley anymore. We're, 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 I don't know where we are. We're in, a, we're in, in Tartarus, the place where the angels go. <laughs> and, and saying that, like, he, you know, he thought he, she was a cult prostitute. What happens when he, he, the servant goes back there? He sends a servant back to repay this woman. And what do all the local men say? There's never a cult prostitute here. <laughs> so her disguise couldn't have been that crazy. It shouldn't have been that convincing, right? He sees what he wants to see. He's, his whole kind of vision is clouded by his sinfulness and wickedness. Mm. Nobody else was fooled by her disguise, but he was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just to fast track now, this is the man. This is the man that God chooses to be part of his, his people. And so Judah ends up in the Messiah's genealogy in Matthew 1. Uh, he, he is the one to continue this promise of the Messiah. So, so the idea here is we do see that God uses sinners, but that's not a complete statement. You see, God uses sinners that he redeems. So when Tamar finally brings this sin before Judah's eyes by showing him his possessions and saying, you know, the one who is father of my baby is the one who owns these things. Judah immediately sees that, man, this, this girl is more righteous than I am. And it doesn't mean that she's righteous in what she did. It just means if there was a standard, if there was a bar, man, she's doing better than I am. Well, she, she, in one sense, she cared about God's promise moving forward. Of course she, she did. She cared about this promised offspring. But in the same sense, it does not justify her deceit no, and her, prost and her are kind of presenting herself as this prostitute. And so Judah goes from condemning this woman to death and saying, okay, she's pregnant, and so she must have had a baby outside of marriage, so she needs to be stoned. It's religious hypocrisy, right? isn't it? Because he was okay with himself not being stoned. For and then, exactly. And this is what happens, is, is when he condemns her and she shows him his stuff, he then goes, man, let, let her go. She's more righteous than I. And this is the conversion. This is the conversion of Judah, where he goes from not trusting in the gracious promises of God to trusting in them. Because what he does here is he provides grace to Tamar, the one who doesn't deserve grace, the one who's been acting wickedly, because for the first time in his life, he can see himself. I am a sinner. My evil is worse than Tamar's, and I need grace from a righteous and holy God. And so by providing grace to Tamar, he now sees in himself sin that's worse than hers and his own need for grace and forgiveness. This is the turning of Judah to the Lord and the promises that come by faith. Which is why, flowing from this, we see the pattern of Judah's life change. All of a sudden, he's this morally upright leader of the family. He's speaking out. He's arguing the case to go into Egypt, allowing Jacob to take the brothers to buy food. Um, saying that he'll get, he'll offer himself as a pledge of of Benjamin's safety, Joseph's younger brother. Then you know it all culminates this climactic moment at the end where Joseph says, "Leave Benjamin with me because you have done this evil thing. He's going to be my slave." And what does Judah do in that moment? He gives himself up redemptively and sacrificially in the place of Benjamin, saying, "I will take his place as your servant. Only let the boy go." So you have this man who started the story off by saying, let's 
sell the favorite son of our father into slavery to then saying, my father's new favorite son, Benjamin, let me go into slavery in his place. This man was redeemed. And because he was redeemed, God uses him. Yeah, that's good. And um, yeah, amen. Amen to that. And for those of you who, who are listening online and, and thinking, well, I'd love to be that kind of Judah, but I'm, I'm still the Judah 38 guy. Well, here's, here's what it says to us if we're in that place. Now, you, you may have made a cosmic stuff up of your life. You, you might have done things that you, you can't share with anyone. You might be in some pit of sin right now, but you're the kind of person that God has come to save. You, you may be listening to this feeling guilty and dirty and ashamed, but I want you to hear this. Even your most felt sins today are no match for the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Even your most felt sins right now, today, no match for the blood of Christ. And Christ is the one who is the great rescuer from, from Judah's line. He's the one who came to save the Judas and the Tamars, people that don't deserve grace. Um, so so j- just because, you know, as, as Brian was rightly saying, Judah's life gets turned around, he's redeemed. That doesn't make him redeemable. Um, no, that, that's the work that God has accomplished in him by his grace, because Jesus has come for prostitutes and sinners. He hasn't come for good people. He's come for, for people like us. And, and King Jesus will be everything that King Judah is not. You know, he 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 entered the world and refused to compromise. When the devil offered him the whole world, Jesus said no. He never he he was never derailed, never off track, sinless, spotless, perfect. And he was resolute because he was living my place and because he needed to die my death. And so you see in Judah a man who is clearly disqualified by his own works, who has made a mess of life. And so if you're sitting there in whatever place you're at thinking, man, I've screwed things up and I'm dirty. I'm unclean. It's embarrassing for people to know what I've gone through. Well, this is why the story's there to show you that you've never gone too far for grace, that your life, no matter what you've gone through, what you've done, um, the sins you've committed, the acts of failure that you've um, been a part of, that that is where God works. He works within the mess and chaos of our corruption. We screw up. We get things wrong. We fall apart. We make kind of um, mistakes of, of, of so much in our lives in a way that we don't even want people to know it. And yet God says, I can redeem you from that. I can call you out of that. I can wash you clean and I can choose you, not because you're worth it, not because you have something in you that I want to, I don't know, justify you by um but because you can't do anything but because you come empty-handed you are precisely the one that i want and so by grace he chooses you and by grace he washes you and by grace he redeems you and calls you his own child Amen. All right. Uh, I think we'll we'll wrap this episode up, and we'll we'll, we'll continue this. So uh, we're not we're not done. We've only we've only well, man, we've only done Genesis, haven't we? And uh, we'll come back to to this theme of the kinds of people that Jesus comes to save and use, and we'll we'll pick up uh, next time. It might not be the next episode, but it will be uh, sometime in the future. We'll we'll pick on some more Bible characters and continue. So thanks for tuning in and listening. I hope that it was a, an encouragement to you, particularly those of us who, who feel like Abraham, we feel like wobbly worshippers, or 
We just get that we're Jacobs and we're deceptive and lying and scheming and conniving, always out for ourselves. Or maybe you're like Judah or Tamar and you've really messed up. I hope it was encouraging that you could see that, you know, these are the people that Jesus comes to and calls to himself, washes clean in his blood, redeems and then uses for his glory. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.